As a free, not-for-profit service, Cradio requires the support of people like you to help keep us going in our mission. To donate, visit cradio.org.au slash donate. Cradio. Restore the Grey Area. A Culture Project Restore Night Talk by Tim Staples. Thank you. I need my beer. Yeah. All right. Now, I have no problem drinking my beer during my talk. Eating my taco is going to be uh, interesting while I'm talking. Well, it's good to see so many of you out here. How many of you were here the last time I did a, I think it was called a, a theology on tap. But yeah, that was fun. That, where was that? In Sydney somewhere. I don't know. I know it was in Australia. I know that much. A few years back, it was incredible. We had so many people that they had to put them out in the parking lot, and they had speakers set up. It was really, really cool. But it's, it's great to be here. There is something so cool about beer and theology, you know? It's just so good. As, as G.K. Chesterton said, one of the beauties about Catholicism is I can have my faith and I can have my pint, right? Amen to that. Well, I'm going to share tonight, as our sister said, about moral clarity in a world of gray. But I'm going to do this in a different sort of way, probably, than you expected. I'm not going to approach this from a you know, natural law perspective or anything like that. I'm going to approach it like this. We are blessed to the hilt as Catholics to have the magisterium of the Catholic Church that gives us the fullness of the truth that God has deigned to communicate to the world for the salvation of the world. We are so blessed to have a church that can, due to this great gift of the papacy and the magisterium that is all the bishops in union with the Pope as well as the Pope when he speaks by himself definitively, we are so blessed to be able to have a man who can say, thus saith God. Ultimately, my brothers and sisters, the answer to the gray cloud that has descended over Western civilization is one. There is only one answer, and the answer is our Catholic faith. 1 John chapter 5, verse 4 says this, This is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. Now, my brothers and sisters, unless you've been living under a rock, you probably have realized that we are living in an age, in a time of unprecedented darkness. Now, some people say, Philip, you've heard me say this before, oh, Staples, you know, you're a convert and you, you exaggerate, you get overly excited. No, I don't. Well, maybe I do. But in this instance, my friends, if you think about it, we are living in a unique time in the history of the world when it comes to the darkness that we are experiencing. I like to break it up into two senses of this darkness that we're experiencing. Now, when it comes to theological confusion that can bring about darkness in a culture, I think the darkest time in the history of the church was the fourth century. 
In the fourth century, as many of you know, can you ima imagine living in the fourth century in about 355 AD, as Saint Athanasius famously wrote, I awoke one morning to discover the whole world was Arian, right? I'm sure you've read about that, how in the fourth century, there was a time where it's estimated 70, perhaps 80% of bishops in the world were heretics. Imagine, we're not, we're not talking about my friends quibbling and arguing over Familiaris Consortio, paragraph 84, and Amoris Laetitia, chapter 8. We're talking about, is Jesus God? This is kind of serious stuff. And you had the, the, the overwhelming majority of bishops in the world were heretics. We're talking about a darkness we cannot even imagine in our Catholic culture today. But the exciting thing is that whenever there is a time of such darkness, you know what's amazing about God? Is God tends to raise up the greatest men and women during these times of darkness. Think about the fourth century, right? In this dark time, who did we have pop up? all of a sudden, right? How about St. Epiphanius, St. Jerome, St. Hilary of Poitiers, St. Augustine, St. Athanasius. We could go down the litany of great men who rose to the occasion. And not only did we turn it around, are you kidding me? Over the next 300 years, we transformed the entire world, giving birth to Christendom, and perhaps the pinnacle of that in 800 with Charlemagne, where we, out of the ashes of the Roman Empire, was born Christendom. You know, that's what God does in these dark times. Now, when it comes to morals, however, folks, what or when is the darkest period in the history of the church when it comes to morals. I would argue in the faith arena of the fourth century. When it comes to morals, it's right now. We're living in the darkest time in the history of the planet. How many of you read recently a friend of ours at Catholic Answers named Father Gary Thomas? He is an exorcist and he is a holy dude. You know what? Whenever he comes around, I'm like this. <laughs> I don't want him looking at me because I'm thinking he's seeing my sins. You know, it's like, okay, hey, Father, how you doing? Yeah, <laughs> right? that's Father Tom. But he, he made the statement recently that what we need to understand, what we have to understand, folks, and, and it's part and parcel of the crisis going on in the church right now as well, the McCarrick situation, the problem with homosexuals, active homosexuals in the church among the clergy and such, this is part and parcel of a worldwide demonic assault like the world has never seen. Folks, we have to understand this as just think about this. The porn empire that began, you know, say thank you, the United States of America, right? Usually the bad stuff starts there. But you know what? Now, we're not even the largest purveyor of pornography anymore. There are many countries, India and others, that have far surpassed us. But think about this. 1953, Hugh Hefner comes along, creates the empire 
that has now covered the globe to the point where the number one product in media overall worldwide is pornography. I mean, this is a dark times. This has led to every manner of immorality being heralded, heralded now as the norm. We are so confused today morally, we don't even know what it means to be a man and a woman anymore. We can't even decide which bathroom to go to anymore, folks. Do we understand how absolutely and utterly confused this world is? We are in a malaise. We are confused. You talk about gray, my friends, we're talking black here that's disguised as gray. Are you all with me? All right. To where today, my friends. Now, I, I don't want to bring you down here. Well, maybe I do just a little bit so I can bring you back up, okay? But think about it today with abortion, with euthanasia, with embryonic stem cell research that's going on all over the world, experimenting on preborn humans like there's so much trash, experimenting now with cloning. We even have this fun stuff today, therapeutic cloning. Have you ever heard of that? Right? Now, the idea is, hey, you know, we can make a clone of you and kind of grow the clone so you can have parts later on in your life. I mean, this would be a bad sci-fi movie a few years ago. But today, we're talking about this stuff, folks with PhD after their name, therapeutic cloning. Homosexual so-called marriage that is not marriage at all. And on and on we can go. My friends, we are living in an incredibly dark time. But you know what? We Catholics are, we're kind of strange. You ever notice that? We're, we Catholics are kind of weird. You know what I mean? I, I mean, Catholics are kind of weird because we look at dark times like this and we don't fall into despair. And by the way, if you are, knock it off. Stop looking at all the negative all the time. Stop looking at the protests, as I said recently at our Catholic Answers Conference. The healing is not going to come in the church by holding placards and protesting. Down with the Pope, down with the bishop. No, that's not of God. That's the spirit of the age. The church is not a democracy. What we have to understand is what Father Gary Thomas said. This kind cometh out not except by much prayer and fasting. My friends, we are in a spiritual situation. But, but here's, here's the point. I want to, if you don't hear anything else I say, please hear this, folks. See, God is kind of sneaky. Have you ever noticed that? God, God is, he tends to be, he'll sneak up on you. See, God's always up to something. When there are dark times, in fact, you better believe God's up to something. Something good is coming. I, I can think of another dark time. We call it Good Friday. I mean, can you imagine? The devil is rejoicing. The apostles are crushed. They don't know what in the world has happened because their whole world has collapsed. The Messiah they thought was going to take over the world is hanging on the cross. It doesn't get any darker than that. And yet, my friends, God was kind of working something, wasn't he? In the midst of this incredible dark, do you think God had something up his sleeve? Yes, he did. It's called the resurrection. 
Amen. Hey, are you guys awake? Amen. Can somebody say, amen? yeah, he had something up his sleeve. I will guarantee you when it comes to the darkest times. And here's the good thing about living in these dark times. And the reason why I say we Catholics are weird. We look at dark times and we rejoice because we know God's up to something. We kneel down and gaze at a crucifix. You know, people in other religions, some of my Jewish friends say, that's the weirdest thing in the world. You know, I had a Jewish rabbi come and speak to our apologist at Catholic Answers, and he mentioned that, you know, that from a Jewish perspective, I mean, it's just so weird. You guys, you have a crucifix on your church walls. I mean, this is a man, an incredible, you know, he's being tortured, and you all have it up on your walls, and you appear to celebrate it, and we, no, we don't celebrate that at all, because it's evil. In fact, the crucifixion is not only the greatest evil that ever occurred on this planet, but it's the greatest evil possible. Amen? It's impossible to get a greater evil than that. Why? Because it's deicide. We killed God. That is you and me. Amen? We killed him with, with our sins. It doesn't get greater than that. And yet... God brings out of that greatest evil possible the greatest good, namely the redemption of all and the transformation of the entire universe. Amen? That hang in there, it's coming soon. Amen? I mean, this is what we're talking So folks, when we see this kind of darkness in our culture today, more than gray, as I said, it's black. Folks, rejoice because God is working something. You ever notice how if you go into a room and it's really, really dark, you ever notice how if you just light a single match, it'll light the whole room up? You light a match in a room like this that's lit up, it doesn't do a whole lot. I mean, it's gonna add some light. Are y'all with me? But when it's darkest, guys, that's the time where we can do the, look, you just light your little light and you can change this whole building, amen? In fact, we light our lights, we can change Australia, amen? amen? I mean, this is an exciting time to be alive as a Catholic, amen? All right, now, that's my introduction. Are you ready for the talk? <laughs> because I am going to change gears here for a moment, and I want to talk about, and uh, I'm going to approach this in a different way than perhaps you expected, uh, but then again, you should expect it because this Staples guy is kind of different. He, he usually is. But I want to talk about moral clarity from this perspective. It is one thing to talk about the darkness that has descended on our world out there. And indeed, it is incredibly and in some ways immeasurably dark. But... The greatest darkness, I believe, occurs among the people of God when the people of God lose their way. I remember years ago, it was Bishop Doran. He was the Bishop of Rockford, Illinois, a friend of mine. I was on his radio show, The Bishop's Hour. He was a brilliant legal mind, um, incredible. But I remember Bishop Doran, he was talking about abortion at the time. But I remember him saying the problem ultimately is not out there. The problem is in here. 
He said among Christians, among Catholics, among Christians, we have lost a sense of what abortion is. We're the ones who have become hardened in our hearts. We are the ones who vote to put pro-abortion politics, politicians in power in Australia, in the United States. We're the ones who say, oh, you know, I get it. You know, the abortion, yeah, it's wrong. But I like this guy's immigration policy, right? I like this guy's fiscal policy here. And we can't be one-issue voters. It's, as Bishop Doran said, that is proof positive that we have lost our moral bearings. And healing is going to come only when Christians wake up. You know, in thinking about that, I did research years ago for a DVD called Truth and Consequences. Oh, we don't have it here? Somebody does. She does right here. You, yeah, right here. Truth and Consequences. I just signed it. Yes, I did. <laughs> to Angela, right here. And I have to tell you something, guys. When I researched for that DVD, now I've been Catholic for 30 years. And, you know, I, I was an Assembly of God minister. I converted to the Catholic faith, as many of you know, basically by trying to disprove it. You know, I, I set out to write the book to end all books that would prove the, er the errors and evils of the Catholic Church, and that's why I'm Catholic. So I had been away from Protestant circles for quite a while. Now, of course, as an apologist, I keep up on things. But I did research for that DVD, Truth and Consequences, which basically in the first half of that DVD, as you're going to discover, I talk about the magisterium of the church. As I mentioned earlier, this incredible gift that God has given to us. And in the second half, I talk about the, that's why it's truth and consequences, the consequences of not having the magisterium of the church. And I have to say, in doing the research, I was looking into the various Protestant sects and some of the non-Christian sects as well, like Mormonism and such, to see where they are on the moral issues. And I have to say, I was shocked. I discovered things I did not know in terms of the level to which our separated brethren have fallen. And, and folks, I'm not doing this to pick on anybody, okay? I'm stating facts here, and it's extremely important that we understand the truth of the matter when it comes to this. I was, in, in my research, I discovered, for example, now I was just researching the United States. I didn't do worldwide. Of course, it would have taken too long. But remember, the United States is more conservative, not less so, generally speaking, than other countries, certainly of Western Europe and Australia, generally speaking. And so I discovered, folks, let me give you a few examples. We don't have time to do them all, but you could get the DVD and you could see them all. But for example, the Presbyterian Church USA, guys, the largest Presbyterian body in the United States today, accepts abortion, homosexual marriage, homosexual ministers. They re recently created liturgies for ordaining. In fact, in their hospitals, in a church that as recently as 1965 
was absolutely pro-life, today they offer abortions as elective surgeries with no questions asked. And of course, homosexual clergy, homosexual marriage. All right. The United Methodist Church. I have a dear friend who is a pastor in the United Methodist Church. And Edwin, if you can hear me, we're waiting for you, buddy. It's time to become Catholic. Anyway, maybe he can hear me back in the United States. Anyway, Edwin's a great guy. But he, and he, he tells me, I'm going to stay in and fight. And I said, brother, there ain't nothing left. Come on over. Come on over. I jokingly say, not really. Uh, but the United Methodist Church, did you know that the United Methodist Church joined with another church, uh, the United Church of Christ? You guys heard of that church? Yeah, it's popularly known as Obama's church. Yes, the United Church of Christ and other Christian bodies to create the National Coalition for Abortion Rights in 1971. That's before Roe v. Wade, okay? The United Methodist, the United Church of Christ, and today, in fact, the United Methodist Church is ready to split over homosexual marriage because now over half of their bishops are in favor, slightly, and a little less than half are against, they're about to split. Folks, there is such more, you see what I'm saying here? There is such moral confusion today, and this is among Christians. Now, let me toss this out. I could go down a litany from the American Baptist to a lot of denominations who simply have no stand whatsoever. They say, like with the Assemblies of God, they don't have an official stand. The American Baptist, it's up to each an individual's conscience and such. The Episcopalians and others are outright. In fact, the Episcopalians in the United States now joined with the United Methodist Church the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America and Presbyterian Church USA. Imagine this, folks. In 1997, they joined together to support Bill Clinton in his veto of partial birth abortion. Can we just ponder that for a second? Do we know what partial birth abortion is? We're talking about taking a baby partially out of its mother's womb in a dangerous procedure a purposeful breach birth, which is dangerous, pull the baby out except for the head and then crush the skull at, at nine months. And we had Christian denominations joining with Bill Clinton when both houses of Congress, in a rare instance in the United States, actually agreed to end this barbaric practice. We had Christian, quote-unquote, churches joining together to support him. What in the world is happening in this world today. We are to the point, my friends, when it comes to the moral law, where the Catholic Church stands alone, even now in the United States, even the Southern Baptist, man, I was raised a Southern Baptist. I love my Southern Baptist brothers, and they make great Catholics, they really do. <laughs> but. Even the Southern Baptist Church, the most conservative Protestant denomination in the United States, allows for abortion in the case of the danger, uh, uh, mother's life in danger. People say, well, that's, that's a, 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 a pretty rare exception, isn't it? But my friends, when you make an exception for murder, 
That's not just being on the slippery slope. You've fallen all the way down to the bottom. And guys, we could get into contraception and so many other issues, but we have to understand the Catholic Church on so many of these issues virtually stands alone. Now, I will join arms with anybody, atheists for life, German shepherds for life, anybody. I will join together with them in, in prayer and stand up. But what's happening today is when we join arms, we discover a lot of times the person we're joining arms with, when it comes down to it, isn't actually as pro-life as you think. And they're killing us because, well, yeah, I'm kind of pro-life, but, you know, I'm for viability or I'm for... Are y'all with me? And it waters down the message to the point where our message is incoherent. I'm going to back up here a little bit, and I want to... Oh, here we go, Philip. Let's see if these guys can hang with me, because Philip knows where we're going right now. I want to back up here a little bit, and I'm going to demonstrate to you theologically one of the underlying reasons for this moral malaise, this moral decline among Christians. Now, we don't have time to talk about Catholics who aren't Catholic, all right? <laughs> and, and or, you know, pro-choice Catholics. That's like saying non-Catholic Catholics. You know what I mean? A pro-choice Catholic. That's an oxymoron. But I am going to toss out a term for you guys. I'm going to challenge you theologically. I'm going to see how many of you have ever heard of this term before. We're going to get down to some of the core reasons for this incredible state we find the Christian world in today. And the term is, get ready for this, and i got to be sure that I don't mispronounce uh, it, penal, okay, I got it right. I could, some of you probably know this, but a few years ago, that's right. A few years ago on Catholic Answers Live, I was trying to say penal substitutionary atonement. And it was back when Patrick Coffin was our host. And I said penile. And I caught myself. I was trying to say penal substitutionary atonement. And that's what we're going to talk about here. But I said penile. Sus uh, and I caught and I backed up and I tried to say it properly. And then I went at it again and I said, oh, sorry, Patrick. Penile, and I did it again. And then Patrick Coffin and I started laughing so hard, we couldn't continue the radio broadcast. We had to go to a commercial. We were laughing so hard, we couldn't talk. So we go to a commercial, and we come back, and we started to talk, and we started laughing again. Oh, that was miserable. But anyway, I want to toss the term out. How many of you know what that is? Penal substitutionary atonement, right? Anybody ever heard of that? See, this is worth the price of admission right here. We're going to learn something. Well, penal substitutionary atonement is the basically the theology of John Calvin and the Calvinists, but you find it also in Lutheran theology and peppered throughout the Protestant world. It's really made famous by John Calvin. And what it says is this. Now you guys will know, and by the way, this thinking has poisoned Christianity and ebbs its way into Catholic thinking as well. We need to wake up and understand that. But it, it basically says this. 
And now I know you've heard this. Jesus did it all on the cross so that we don't have anything to do. Amen? Jesus did it all. And a couple of the famous verses that were used in order to, to, to let's drill down into what this actually is. Remember when our Lord is on the cross, one of his seven last sayings, if you haven't read Bishop Sheen's book, you need to, it's glorious, the seven last sayings. One of those was what? My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me, right? How many of you have ever heard this? And unfortunately, this creeps into Catholic thinking sometimes, that at that point, when Jesus said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? God the Father forsook God the Son. He turned his back on the Son. Why? Because 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says this. You guys hang in with me here because when we get to the end of the road where we're heading, you guys are going to get some good stuff. All right, so hang in there. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. Christ, though he knew no sin, was made to be sin for us, that we may be made the righteousness of God in him. You ever heard that? John Calvin took that in a strict literal sense to mean Jesus at that moment became sin. He was reprobated by the Father. When the Father looked at him, he saw yeah, heinous sin, and he turned his back on his son. He was reprobated. He experienced the reprobation of hell. And by the way, this is one of the many ways Calvin arrives at his double predestination, right? Because Christ was reprobated. That is, he experienced the hell in the place of sinners. He saved them. It would be impossible for them then to go to hell because Christ has already experienced the pain of hell for them, saved them. This is why Calvin taught Christ didn't die for everyone. Amen? Somebody's learning something right now. I see light bulbs going on all over here. Cartoon characters right now with light bulbs. But th this is very, very important theological stuff here, guys. Are, are you with me? Because Jesus was reprobated for them, they are saved. It's impossible for them to be anything but saved. So it's also impossible for Christ to have died for everyone because if he did, everybody would be saved. And that's not true. Therefore, we have the limited atonement of Christ. You know, in the Calvinist TULIP acronym, total depravity, Unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistibility of grace, and perseverance of the saints, or once saved, always saved. The middle letter of the acronym is L, limited atonement. Jesus didn't die for everyone. I know it's, it's, it's incredible, right, that, that a Christian could hold to this, especially when you have verses of Scripture, like, you know, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Jesus Christ is the propitiation for our sins, and not only our sins, but the sins of the whole world. All right. Any questions? First Timothy 2, 4. God wills all to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Amen. Second Peter 3, 9. God is not willing that any uh, 
perish, but that all come to redemption. I mean, it could go on, Matthew 23, 32. Jesus wept over Jerusalem, 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 thou that killest the prophets. How oft I would have gathered you as a hen doth gather her chicks, but you refused. Amen. According to John Calvin's theology, Jesus was lying. Jesus is a liar because if he would have willed for them to come, they would have come. So Jesus, did you know, you, you may laugh at that, but actually Martin Luther taught that. He taught that Jesus in his human nature actually was wrong when he said that. Matthew 23, 37. But at any rate, this is how ingrained this in is, and not just in Calvinist minds, but Luther as well. As many of you know, he denied free will. Okay, but here's the bottom line. Catholic Church. Paragraph 1037 of the Catechism, just so we're clear here. The church says, God predestines no one to hell. In order to go to hell, one must freely commit a mortal sin and remain impenitent unto death. Praise be Jesus Christ for the Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church. All right. But now let's get back to why is this so significant? Because this idea of penal substitutionary atonement, which I, I, I guess I should as an apologist tell you this too, the Catholic Church condemns that both at the Council of Trent, Session 6 on Justification, Canon 17, but you also have in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph 602 and especially 603, you have an excellent little exegesis on the words of our Lord on the cross, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The catechism says, Jesus Christ was not reprobated. That's a, re a response to John Calvin. But in saying those words, Jesus became so identified with us in the incarnation and by virtue of the fact, now if we want to add the Catechism, paragraph 478, Jesus also in his human nature had the beatific vision, which afforded him certain things that you and I don't have, like the ability to, during his passion, the Catechism says, he knew and loved each one of us. Amen? And with a human heart, not just in his divine nature, but with a human heart, he knew and loved you. In fact, uh, I'll toss this in, no extra charge. <laughs> Pius XII, Mystici Corporis, 1943, paragraph 75. Pius XII says, not just in his passion, but from the womb, Jesus knew and loved each one of us. And he experienced the pain, the agony, now I'm going to add to it, of hundreds of millions of abortions. Jesus experienced the pain of every child that's been abused, every woman that's been raped. Jesus experienced, even from the womb, but most profoundly in his passion. He knew and loved each one of us, says the Catechism. So it is in that sense that he says, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Not because he was reprobated. That, my friends, and by the way, 2 Corinthians 5.21, you can't interpret Scripture in a literal sense all of the time. Because if you do, you're going to have Scripture saying all kinds of weird stuff. All right? You know, I like to use the example of 
Hebrews 9.27, which says it's appointed for every man once to die and then the judgment. If you're going to be Mr. Fundamentalist here, okay, it's appointed for each and every man once to die and then the judgment. Well, brother, what do you do with Elijah, Elisha, Jesus, Paul, Peter? They all raised the dead, didn't they? Don't those people die at least twice? Are you all with me? Right? We have to understand Scripture is not always to be interpreted in a strict, literal sense. In that instance, it's laying down a general theological norm. And there are exceptions sometimes to general theological norms. We have to take all of Scripture. But to say that Jesus became sin in a literal sense, folks, that's nuts. Because it's impossible for any person to become sin. Sin by nature is a privation. Amen? It's a lack of some perfection that ought to be in a given nature. It's, that's what evil is. It's a lack of... You can't have a being being a privation. This is why, my friends, we know God says in Genesis 1... Is anybody else having fun or is it just me? All right? This is why in Genesis 1, God says after He creates everything, it is good, 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 it is very good. Amen? Because God can only create good. Because He is good. Evil comes from the free choices of rational beings, angels, and men. Amen? So you cannot, say, even on that level, say Jesus became sin, but then you also have the problem you know, of that thing called the hypostatic union. Right? The human nature of Christ joined in the one divine person in that union, you can't have the father reprobating the son without destroying the hypostatic union and the nature of God. All right. So what is it saying? It's saying Christ became a sin offering for us. He became a curse for us because the curse of the law comes from what? Sin. Sin is what brings about the curse that separates us from God, hence God sends His Son to heal us. He becomes the sin offering for us. All right, guys, forgive me for that little apologetic interlude. But all of this stuff is important. Let's get back to penal substitutionary atonement because this is what happens with that theology. It leads to this understanding that it's extremely dangerous. And it's in the minds of so many Christians. I know this because I was raised with it. I was raised with it. And it says, once again, Jesus did it all on the cross. He saved all who are going to be saved. You have no choice in the matter. Amen? Because He did it all. Well, folks, if that's true, says John Calvin, when God brings you to Himself and you accept Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, Guess what? All your sins are forgiven. Past, present, and future. You ever heard that before? This is the teaching that comes out of John Calvin rooted in this idea of penal. And there are other errors that it's rooting in, rooted in. I'm just focusing on this one for now. Okay? When you come to Christ or Christ draws you to himself... Your sins are taken away, past, present, and future. Now, folks, I mean, I got to admit, my lower nature really likes that. 
I got to admit, I mean, doesn't, doesn't that sound kind of good? Come on, guys, don't take your halos off just for a second. I mean, come on, doesn't that sound kind of good? You mean whatever I do? Yeah, Martin Luther once wrote, I could now, granted he was speaking hyperbolic and such, but he said it. I could commit adulteries hundreds of times in a day and it would not affect my standing with God because I am justified by faith alone. Amen? All right, imagine that. Now, you know what, just, just by way of a, a, another little interlude here. I ask people, you know, if, if you don't want to get into all the theology of this, I just ask a simple question. What, what's your name? Gabriel. Gab Gabriel? Gabriel. Okay, Gabriel. I'm an American. I speak funny, all right? Uh, Gabriel, <coughs> which theology do you think would help you in your spiritual life? Let's say you're thousand miles, are you, are you married? Okay, let's imagine you're married. You're a thousand miles away from your wife. You're in a hotel. You're on business. And all you got to do is flip a little switch on the TV right there, and you can have all kind of uh, immoral stuff flooding out of that television and into your brain, right? All you got to do is flip that switch. I'm going to ask you an honest question. Which theology you think would help you more? The one, yeah, well, you're not supposed to say it so fast. <laughs> you're ruining my spiel here. Right? <laughs> Taking away my stick. No, here we go. The theology that says you are just as justified and saved before, during, and after you flip that switch. Or the theology that says if you flip that switch, you're cheating on your wife, you're committing adultery, you're committing mortal sin that will separate you from God, and if you die in that state, you will go to hell for all eternity. Which one do you think would kind of be the... I'm, you know, folks, I'm not saying Catholics are better than others. Catholic, uh, no, I'm saying which theology do you think is going to give you the impetus to maybe think about, I don't think I'm going to do that. Amen? See, what we have to see is that these theologies that we could talk about, we could talk about more. I just picked penal substitutionary atonement because I love that phrase and now I can say it right <laughs> without screwing up. We could talk about lots more. But my friends, the ramifications are enormous. Now, on the flip side, now if you guys can hang in with me, man, for just about 10 more minutes, we're gonna draw this stuff together and some of you are going to shout hallelujah. If, if there's any Pentecostals in here anyway, you'd be shouting hallelujah here in a minute. Because now I want to communicate now the Catholic position on the redemption versus the Calvinist position that I just presented. And there's a reason I'm doing this. In the Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph 517, beautiful paragraph in the Catechism. The Catechism says this, Jesus Christ's entire life was redemptive. Now in Protestant theology, Calvinist especially, but generally in, in uh, Protestant theology, the idea is Jesus did it all on the cross for us, right? He did it all so we don't have to do anything. And everything happened on the cross. In Catholic theology, though, the redemption occurs 
throughout the entire life of Christ, not just on the cross. Now, the cross is the pinnacle of the redemption, no doubt, because as Hebrews 9.22 says, where there is no shedding of the blood, there is no remission of sins, right? So that's the pinnacle of the redemption. But Christ actually redeemed us throughout his entire life. And I love the, the catechism gives five verses of scripture that demonstrates this. Man, it's succinct. It's wonderful. You guys are praying, why couldn't Tim be this succinct? Like the catechism, right? I want to drink my beer, and this guy keeps talking. But look, in the catechism, paragraph 517, it gives a, a, a list of five verses, starting with 2 Corinthians 8, 9. The catechism is awesome. In 2 Corinthians 8, 9, the catechism quotes this text. Christ, though he were rich, or though he was rich, became poor in order that we might be made rich in him. And by the way, that's not your pocketbook. Amen? You ever hear those TV preachers? Glory to God, Jesus became poor so that I could be rich. And <laughs> oh, man, I kind of like that stuff. Anyway, in fact, I, I heard one. I'm, I'm not kidding you. I heard a preacher actually say that. And I, I don't like to say names, so I won't, I won't say Creflo Dollar's name. You know? But yeah, it was Creflo Dollar. And I heard him say, I kid you not, he's an extremely wealthy, you know, health and wealth preacher. And he said, Christ became oh, so that I could be rich. And I want to tell, I can't get this out. <laughs> I, wanna, I shouldn't be laughing. This is bad, Tim, bad. And he said, but, and he goes, but I want to tell you, brothers, I am loaded. <laughs> I'm not kidding you. He actually said that. And I'm thinking, yeah, because you've got all these people giving you, giving you all their money so that they can get rich. But anyway, oh my Lord, the gospel of greed. But anyway, the bottom line, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done that. The bottom line is, this is talking about the incarnation. In the incarnation, my brothers and sisters, Christ, in the infinite act of humiliation of Christ taking upon himself flesh, he merited infinitely. He merited enough to save a billion worlds with infinite merit left over. Amen? Because he merited infinitely just in the incarnation. And then the, the, the scripture goes on, or, or the catechism, then quotes Luke chapter 2, verses 51 and 52. Remember when Jesus was 12 and Mary and Joseph lost Jesus. Remember? Three days. Of course, you and I know this is three days of darkness, preparing the Blessed Mother for the three days of darkness you would experience at the foot of the cross. God's up to something here. But on, just let's, Tim, stick to the talk, okay? Here we go. Remember, they find Jesus in the temple. And Mama, in good Jewish Mama fashion, said, what are you doing, boy? Right? He didn't, she didn't say it exactly like that. No, you're not. I'd be about my father's business. <laughs> That's right. That's right. No, you're not. I'd be about my, my father's business, right? Or in my father's house. And the Bible says Mary and Joseph didn't understand fully what was going on, but Mary pondered these things in her heart. Mary had a unique understanding that nobody else did, even though she didn't fully comprehend. She grew up until the foot of the cross where we believe she reached the apex but here's the point. Mama says, get your tail home. 
In other words, it's like she didn't understand exactly everything's going on, but she said, get your tail home right now. And the Bible says Mary, uh, Jesus obeyed his parents, and thus he grew in age and wisdom and grace before God and man. Awesome text the Catechism uses to show that Christ's entire life is redemptive. In the incarnation, he merited. In that act of obedience, obeying his mom and dad, he merited infinitely for us. In fact, in a sense, he sanctified childhood. And the graces that exploded in his life, both in the incarnation from the first instant when he was in the womb of Mary, his first act of being, along with the beatific vision, merited infinitely, graces flooded down the centuries to all of us. Amen? Well, now, as a child, when he sacrifices, he obeys, grace explodes into his life and down through the centuries to all of us as well. And then it moves forward. I'll do this quickly. Matthew 8, 14 through 17, when Jesus healed, remember Peter's mother-in-law? St. Matthew then quotes Isaiah 53. He was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we were healed. The catechism is pointing out that Jesus was saving us. It, not just healing Peter's mother-in-law, but all of us. Amen? And it goes on. Listen to this one. Gosh, guys, I get excited. I can't help it. John 15, 3. Talk about a cool use of scripture. John 15, 3, the script, Jesus says to the apostles, you have been made clean because you have received my word, right? I always like to point that out to my Protestant friends who believe Jesus did it all on the cross. Well, how could they have already been made clean if Jesus hadn't died on the cross yet? Are you with me? You want to know why? Because he's the head of the Catholic church. That's why. Amen. And he's teaching us something. The word was already healing that was coming out of his mouth into the apostles' lives. And then you go forward, of course, to 1 Peter chapter 1, 18 and 19. We are redeemed through his precious blood on the cross. But then Romans 4.25, a cool verse again. Romans 4.25 says this. He was crucified for our sins. He was raised again for our justification. What? I thought it was finished on the cross. Ever heard this one? John 19, it is finished. Meaning, Jesus did it all, so we don't have to do anything, right? Obviously false. In fact, it is finished, guys, just in case anybody asks. Jesus already told, what he, told us what he finished in John 17, just the night before. Remember in his great high priestly prayer, he says, Father, I have finished the work you have given me to do on earth. Amen? That's what he's, he's not talking about. He did it all so you don't have to do anything. That is a Calvinist myth, all right? And obviously there was more to do because Romans 4 says he was crucified for our sins. He was raised again for our justification. Was he raised again when he died on the cross? Uh-uh, hadn't happened yet, amen? And folks, we could go on. Hebrews 7, 24 through 26 tells us now he ever liveth to make intercession for us at the right hand of the Father. And he is saving souls even now at the right hand of the Father. Now, why is this so important? Because if you move now to paragraph, this is your homework, paragraph 517, 
to 521, the Catechism goes on to quote the great St. John Eudes when it says this, the essence of the spiritual life for Christians is to allow the life of Jesus Christ by our free will, our choice, to be lived in and through us. See, in a nutshell, Jesus did not suffer and die so that we don't have to. Amen? He suffered and died so that our suffering, and by the way, can I tell y'all something? You're going to suffer. Yeah. And you're going to die. Just thought I'd let you know, <laughs> not to bum anybody out, but that is a fact. We're all going to suffer and we're going to die. But Jesus says, by his grace and allowing his life to be lived in us and through us, our suffering and our death becomes salvific. Here is where we bring it all together, my brothers and sisters. You see, one of the reasons why we are suffering from the malaise that we are suffering from, the moral confusion, gray that has gone beyond gray to black, even in Christian communities. Now, of course, Angela, as you're going to hear when you watch my video, it's because they don't have the magisterium of the church because that would take care of everything. But you also have this as a reality to the Calvinist Lutheran mind, the acts you perform do not have eternal consequences. See, Jesus did it all on the cross so that what we do doesn't matter for eternity. Whether you have an abortion, whether you do this, this is why the American Baptist Church that my friend Steve Ray comes from, he says, Tim, all we taught was, are you saved? All we just Say the sinner's prayer. After that, it doesn't matter. We don't have a stance on abortion. It doesn't matter. It's up to the conscience of the individual. Are you saved, brother? This is what happens when you don't understand that each and every day we need to live our redemption and we need to understand that our actions either merit life or they merit death in our lives. Amen? You know what that does? It makes everything really important. And this is why in our Catholic Church, we have spent a couple thousand years diving in and getting it right on things like mortal sin and venial sin. To the Protestant, so who cares? All sins are the same. And Jesus took care of all of them. Now, now, in defense of my Protestant friends, I mean, come on. I used to preach from the pulpit this. If you want to be blessed. Oh, I'm getting back in my Pentecostal mode. If, if, you, if you want to be blessed now in this life, glory to God, you got to live it. You got to live the faith. But when it comes to eternity, your eternity is taken care of, folks. This, my friends, leads to the it's beyond dangerous the sin of presumption that says, I'm taken care of, man. It leads to, I always think of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12, at, at this point where St. Paul says, if any man think he stand, take heed lest he fall. Amen. The worst position you can be in as a Christian is to think you're standing. Amen. Because my friends, you think you're standing. According to St. Paul, get ready. You're going to fall. 
The implication being, we get to thinking, you know, we're like the Pharisee. Have you ever remember that? The, Lord, I thank you so much that I'm not like that one over there. Thank you. Right? That sinner over there. I'm just so holy and righteous, right? Oh, Lord. When you get there, folks, you're in a dangerous place because that is danger. That's a dangerous level of blindness. That is manifest in lots of different ways in Catholic culture. I don't know about you guys. I, I slip in this from time to time. And some of you are going to not like me anymore. And that's okay. When I say I love Pope Francis, I do. Hit me with rocks later. I do. I love his emphasis on the poor, his, his preference for the poor. I love his emphasis on evangelization and kissing the feet of lepers. I love the fact that he also emphasizes the need for apologetics in Evangelii Gaudium, paragraph 132, if you're taking notes. I love how he emphasized in that letter that we need to evangelize every single person that is alive. And he went down the list, everything from Catholics to our separated brethren, to everybody that's breathing, we need to evangelize them. I love the way he says we need to come up with a creative apologetic that reaches a world that is suffering terribly from incredulity. We've got to come up with a creative apologetic that reaches people outside of the church. Amen. Hey, I'm guys, I know there are problems. I get it. Okay. But there's a lot of good stuff coming from that guy, too. I just thought I would toss that out to you. But here's the bottom line, folks. As Catholics, we have the message. And we are the only ones. Gosh, Tim, you sound so arrogant, right? Doesn't that sound arrogant? We Catholics are the only ones who ultimately have the message that is able to heal this world because we are the only ones who understand the gravity of the situation in which we are in. This is why the Catholic Church leads the charge. You go to any March for Life anywhere in the world and you will find Catholics leading the charge. That's a simple fact. Now, guys, I know I have Protestant friends who we march with, praise God, amen. But the bottom line is Catholics are leading the charge. The bottom line is it is only the Catholic Church that declares the truth when it comes to euthanasia. Do you realize euthanasia, and now in the United States, we have seven states. Hawaii just passed the law now. Starting January 1st, 2019, euthanasia is now legal in Hawaii. We have seven states now, and more are coming, and the District of Columbia that legalized euthanasia. The Catholic Church is standing. Embryonic stem cell research, as I mentioned, cloning. You name the matter, and most of the Christian world has nothing to say. It's the Catholic Church that's leading the charge. And I believe one of the essential reasons is because we've got our theology right. And we understand that souls are on the line. It's not just about being blessed in this life, my friends. It's about getting to heaven. Amen? If you want to get to heaven, you don't kill your neighbor. Amen? If you want to get to heaven, you learn about the nature of man and woman and you respect God's law when it comes to marriage and the dignity of the human person. Amen? And we alone, as Catholics, have the message. Now, I hope everybody has been uplifted now. I tried to beat you up as much as I could at the front 
so that we'd be encouraged in the end. But I guess I'll leave you with this thought, and maybe if we have any time, because I went kind of long, we could take some questions. But I, I suppose the bottom line is this. In this era of darkness in which we're living, I think of so many people that are walking around outside this bar right now, probably in this bar as well, that are so confused and lost because they don't know what it means to be a human being anymore. Don't know if there's a God or how God relates to me as a human being. I'm going to share this last thing with you and I'll shut up, I promise. But just, let's see, what is this month? October, right? So. Two months ago, I was in a jewelry store in San Diego and I was buying an anniversary present for my wife, our 18th anniversary. And this beautiful Jamaican woman waited on me. And we just started talking, you know, she showed me and I, I got the necklace and then they were, they were gonna go back and clean it and, and wrap it up as, as a gift, right? And so we're sitting there, and she just happens to ask, so what do you do for a living? <laughs> I love when they ask me that. But I said, well, I'm a Catholic apologist. She said, huh? What is that? And so I explained what it was, and she was fascinated. She was intrigued. And so we just started talking. And she said, so obviously you're buying this for your lovely wife. And I said, yes, I am. And I said, this is our 18th wedding anniversary. And she went, 18 years? Wow. I don't know anybody that's been married 18 years. Man, most of my friends have already been divorced and remarried, some of them more than once. And this woman's probably in her early 30s, right? She says, wow, 18 years. And I said, yeah, and we have seven children. <laughs> you should, oh, it's priceless to see the face when you say seven children. She goes, seven? It was kind of like Maria on Sound of Music. Remember that? When the... When her superior said, you like children, don't you, Maria? Well, yes, but seven. <laughs> it was seven. And she was blown away. And I started to share with her about the blessing. How do you do this? How do you do? And I started sharing with her, oh, my gosh, the, the blessing that it is, the seven kids and such. And I started talking about sacrifice and how as, as a father, I sacrifice for my wife and I sacrifice for my children. That's really the essence of what love is. And I, you know, she is obviously had never heard this before, but I started sharing with her about what love is. Love is to will the good of the other. Love is pouring yourself out for the other without asking anything in, in return. And what was amazing is she said, oh my gosh, I actually quoted to her 1 Corinthians 13, 5, this Jamaican woman who obviously was not Christian or maybe had a nominal Christian upbringing. But I said, you know, St. Paul says, love considers not its own. Actually, in the Greek text, it says, love does not consider its own things because it's all about the other, right? And she said, oh my gosh, that's beautiful. I've never heard that before. That's the opposite of what I learned in school. In school, we learned we have to love ourselves first. And if we don't love ourselves, we can't love anybody else. And it's all about me. And if I'm not being good to me, then I can't be good to anybody else. And I said, you know what? You know, from a Christian perspective, that is the path to utter misery 
and ultimately an eternity in hell. She seemed a little surprised when I said that. It actually helped her to see. I said, you know what, that's the definition of hell. Hell is, catechism, paragraph 1033 says, hell is the definitive self-exclusion from unity with God and the blessed. That's what hell is. Hell is all about you. Think about a, a one mortal sin, right? Adultery. What are you doing? You commit adultery. You're saying, God, I don't want you. I don't want your law, right? And what are you saying to your wife? I don't want you. And what are you saying to the woman you're having adultery with? I don't want you either. You're not respecting her either. What is adultery all about? You. You first. Me. Welcome to hell. Amen? That's what hell is. But you know what was amazing? As I started sharing with her, you know what I've discovered as a Christian is what Pope St. John Paul II said that man cannot find himself until he gives the perfect gift of self. And when you give yourself away and you love and you put your children first before you and you put your wife first before you, you know what happens? Man, you end up getting blessed because you experience what love is, right? And I couldn't believe it, brothers. I had to share this with you. She starts crying. Tears are coming down her face. We're in the middle of a jewelry store. And she said, oh my gosh, that's the most beautiful thing I've ever heard. Oh, here comes the necklace. Okay, well, let's... Amen, guys. You know what? We talked a lot tonight about theology and the importance of getting it right in our theology. And it is important because I do believe the errors of Lutheranism and Calvinism have contributed greatly to the moral decline because when Christians lose it, my friends... That is a tragedy. And Catholics not living their faith is the biggest travesty and tragedy of all. But you know, I always come back to the answer ultimately, yeah, it's in truth. We need to get our theology right, but it's also ultimately in love. That Jamaican woman experienced love, at least intellectually. And she heard a little bit about how I love my wife and I, my kids. At least I try to, guys, as best I can. One of the hardest things I have to do is leave my kids. I can't tell you a few days ago how hard it was when my kids were crying at the door and I'm crying at the door. I, I like it better when I leave like at, at four in the morning when they're not awake. But this time coming to Australia, you know, you leave at weird times. So I, I left the house at like 3.30. We homeschool, so all the kids are there, and it was a scene. Oh, my gosh, we're all crying, and my driver's out in the in driveway, and I'm walking out. <laughs> but you know what, guys? That Jamaican woman experienced just a touch of love. You know what? She experienced maybe just the lighting of one match in a time of incredible darkness where she has no idea who God is and what love is and what life is all about. Just that little match, amen. You may not leave here and now you're an expert on explaining penal substitutionary atonement and how that relates to the moral decline of Western civilization. I tried to just get at that a little bit, but maybe all of us 
can get out there and love people with the truth as best we can. God bless you. That was Tim Staples with Restore the Grey Area. For more talks, interviews and shows, visit cradio.org.au.